Well, hi there, friends at Birmingham City Church. Jeff Lucas here. Good morning to you. It's great to be with you and to have the opportunity to be participating in your first conference. My wife Kay joins me in sending our love and greetings to you all. We've got such fond memories of previous visits to the church there. Our thanks to Pastor Mark and Kathy and the team for the privilege of having this chance to share with you today. The title for my message this morning is Take Heart, Take Heart. You don't need me to remind you, but let me do it anyway. It's been a year. It's been such a year of uncertainty. We've been bombarded by daily headlines of doom. There have been, uh, uh, there's been a mingling of heartwarming stories of hope as Captain Tom marched around his garden and raised millions as we stood together in solidarity yet socially distanced and clapped for our carers. But during this time, I've also noticed a strange array of new phrases or rather revised usage of language. We've heard a lot about things being ramped up. Have you noticed that? Ramping up used to be an activity much beloved by skateboarders and BMX bike riders and rolling out. That was the domain of carpet layers everywhere. Tears were something that we saw in wedding cakes. And then a lockdown usually described what happened in a prison when the inmates got a bit restless. There has been an unprecedented use of the word unprecedented. And the Prime Minister has utilised another rather old-fashioned word in his Downing Street briefings. Alas, have you noticed? He said alas quite a bit. At times we thought we were caught up in a Shakespearean drama. But here's another rather strange sounding sentence because of the context in which it was shared. Imagine this. You are listening to someone who is effectively on death row. They have told you that they are going to be executed. And this is what he says. These are words from Jesus to his disciples recorded in John chapter 16. A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone for my father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble but take heart. I have overcome the world. These were the final words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before his arrest. Perhaps, therefore, words carefully chosen because he wanted them to remain solidly, securely in their hearts as they navigated the bewildering circumstances of the few days ahead and, indeed, of the rest of their lives. Now, in these words, first of all, we have a prediction. A prediction. Jesus says, you'll leave me all alone. I'm not alone, yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. There's something really beautiful here, something remarkable. You see, he's going to his death, but he comforts them. It's not the other way around. And he is comforting them with two facts that are absolutely vital that they grasp. First of all, they think that he's going to be alone because they're going to desert him. But that's not the case. His father will be with him. So there's a sense of comfort and assurance there. But secondly, he's letting them know 
that he knows what they're like. He is well aware of their fragility. They are going to fail. Elsewhere, Jesus predicted Peter's denial. And this prophecy was fulfilled in Matthew 26, 56. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So look at the beauty of this moment. He's bringing them comfort. Well, I won't be all by myself. But he's also letting them know that despite their weakness, despite their fragility, they still will have a place in his purposes. They still will be secure in his love. They are totally known and totally loved. They don't come as a surprise to him. And I think that that message goes against the grain in our culture where so often love is something that's very reciprocal. You're loved if you're lovely. But Jesus is saying, I know what you're like, but my love is upon you. Now that truth, let's face it, that truth can be misconstrued or twisted. Someone could say, well, well, if that's the case, then I'll just go and sin my brains out. God knows what I'm like, and then I'll ask him for forgiveness, and then we'll just carry on with life. And the New Testament faces the tension that grace can create. And so in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are not called, we are not invited to abuse this grace, but we are told that in our vulnerabilities and weaknesses, we are utterly known and loved. And I've found this year that it's been quite helpful to give myself permission to be fragile, to struggle. Sometimes people have asked me the question, how are you doing? And I've said, well, it depends what time of the day you actually ask me that question. Let's celebrate the truth that we are not loved in our strength, but we are loved in the midst of, in the reality of, in the moments of our weakness. There's also a promise of pressure here. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. That's not my favorite verse. I haven't got that on a refrigerator magnet mounted with pride on my Christian refrigerator. No, it's not news that we want to hear, but it is news that we need to hear. This word world John uses the word world in his gospel 80 times, and a third of those occasions it's describing a world full of conflict, unbelief, struggle. And we've known that trouble, haven't we? Sickness and bereavement, uncertainty, unemployment, pressure on relationships, breakdown of relationships. The Bible concedes and affirms the reality of trouble in this life. Writing to those contentious Corinthians, the Apostle Paul used this same word, trouble, philipsis in the Greek, nine times in those two letters. Let's be honest that in this life, we won't always get a first choice lifestyle or living. Sometimes we will experience second choices. I'm going to talk more about this tomorrow night when we think about the person of Daniel. I think if we're not careful, we can set young people, for example, up with an expectation that they're always going to get what they want. If you can dream it, you can do it, says the motivational speaker. But it isn't actually true. There might be hundreds of thousands of young men, for example, who would like to play 
um, Premier League football in the coming years, but they're not all going to make it. If we're not careful, we can suggest to them that the ordinary life, the life of struggle, yes, the life of disappointment is somehow less than significant. We need to face the reality while not dampening their dreams that in this world we will have trouble. A friend of mine, Dick Foth, who serves as part of our Timberline team, has said life is what happens when you expected something else. And I can hear someone saying, no, no, I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to live a life without limits because the Bible says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, yes, it does. But that doesn't mean that we can do anything. We can only do that for which Christ is strengthening us, for which Christ is calling us. And by the way, when Paul wrote those words, he was parked in a two-year lockdown under house arrest in Rome. Hardly a life without limits. Is it possible that some of us have been angry, irritated, disappointed with God because he hasn't given us what he never promised to give us? He never told us that life would be endlessly easy. On the contrary. Thirdly, let's see that peace is found in the person of Jesus. Peace is found in the person of Jesus, in me, so that in me you may have peace, he says. Now, peace can be elusive, can't it? Difficult to grasp. Ronald Rollheiser has said, it is no easy task to walk this earth and find peace. Inside of us, it would seem something is at odds with the very rhythm of things, and we're forever restless, dissatisfied, frustrated and aching. We are so overcharged with desire that it is hard to come to simple rest. Here's what might sound like a radical statement. True peace is only found in Jesus, not just through Jesus, but in the person of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, and in the presence of Jesus. Listen to how Eugene Peterson renders Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. Hear how peace is personalized in these words. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Jesus speaking. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Peace found in the person of Jesus. Do you remember when the disciples were terrified uh, when they saw Jesus walking on the water? A terrifying, awesome sight, I'm sure. And we read in Matthew 14, he said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. You see, peace is not just some disembodied, vague emotion that we are hunting around for. But rather radically, Jesus lets us know that peace is found in, in his company, in being in him and with him. I know that to be true in my own life. Uh, as a rather confused, bewildered 16-year-old, I remember a Christmas Eve, actually, where I was out with friends with, um, with two objectives in mind, to get blind drunk and then to find a church where they would be having a midnight service so that we could disrupt it. Um, within a few months, and by the way, we didn't find the church to, to, to disrupt, 
Within a few months, I had heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus at the Elam Church in Barking, and my life was completely transformed, not by getting a little dose of religion or a, a bit of church on Sunday in some vague way, but in deciding to walk with and live with and know by faith the person of Jesus. Peace is found in relationship with him. And if you don't know him, thank you so much for being one of those who are watching this. Why not begin that journey today? And if you do know him, why not join me together, more importantly than with the Apostle Paul, who, who, who declared that incredible, all-surpassing ambition that I might know him, that I might know Christ, because there, there is where peace is found. Fourthly, there's a posture for us to take, a posture to take. Jesus says, take heart. He says this on a number of occasions to a paralyzed man in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus says to that man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And then to the apostle Paul facing all kinds of trials in Acts chapter 23, we read, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. When we hear Jesus say, take heart, he's, he's actually telling us to do something, to embrace an attitude with intentionality. The wording here in the text, it's called an imperative verb. That means there is an action for us to take, there is something for us to do. Some years ago, back in 2002 actually, Deb Reville set out to row the Atlantic in a rowing boat. It took her 111 days to do that, dodging oil tankers that were bearing down upon her, rowing all day, and then taking a couple of hours rest, only to discover that she'd drifted all the way back to where she'd started the day, and avoiding flying fish that that pummeled into her or pummeled her as she was trying to row. But Deborah said that she had a post-it note stuck on the cockpit in front of her with just three words, choose your attitude. Now I know it can sound a bit like a slogan from one of those motivational speakers, but there's a sense in which this is what Jesus is saying to us. When he's saying, take heart, he's calling us to choose courage, to choose faith. It's imperative. A similar thought is found in John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. A few years ago, some friends came to visit us from America and we headed to London for a day. We drove our car to the railway station. We were running a bit late jumped out of the car, ran and, and, and got onto the train, had a marvellous day in London, and then came back at the end of the day, walked into the car park to discover the driver's door, the driver's door of the car open. And I thought, we've been robbed. Someone has broken into the car. Not so. I'd been in such a rush that day that I'd left the car door open all day. Thankfully, nothing was stolen. I've discovered this year that my mind has a door but that I am not called to just leave it wide open. I am not called to live at the mercy of any thought that might just pop into my mind and meander around and, and cause me all kinds of grief before I finally, finally 
determined that I'm going to think about something else. No, the Bible calls, calls us to imperative action, to take every thought captive. I know that's easier said than done. I know that takes the Holy Spirit's help. But we are not to live just at the mercy of our minds. Now, let me say that for some of us, there have been special struggles this last year. And it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to, again, concede our fragilities. And there are some of us that have experienced mental health challenges that require professional help and perhaps medication. I know what it feels like to spend a year in clinical depression. It happened some years ago, but the experience has made me more sensitive to the challenges that many others face. But we are all called generally to respond to this call of Jesus to choose our attitude, to choose faith, to choose courage. Holy Spirit, help us this new year to know what it means to really take heart. Well, the last thing in conclusion is this. There is a kingdom perspective that we need to have, a kingdom perspective, because Jesus says, I have overcome the world. The word overcome is only used once in John, six times in 1 John, and 17 times in Revelation. Jesus is saying, I am the overcomer. And then later in the New Testament, it's John again speaking, 1 John 5 and verse 4, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. In other words, Jesus has triumphed. He is victorious. He is the overcomer, and we can overcome as well. In the midst of our challenges, which again, the troubles that we know, Paul outlines some of those troubles in Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So in the midst of those challenges, which the Bible concedes we are going to experience, we are then told in Romans 8.37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, who loves us. More than conquerors. I get that we can be conquerors, but how can we be more than conquerors? Well, it would take a long time to unpack that. But perhaps one answer is this, that as we apply the lessons that we have learned in this last year in the academy of suffering and trial, an academy that none of us would really want to sign up for, as we learn, we glean the wisdom from the journey, so our faith in the midst of the fire can become like pure gold. So we develop that wisdom and we don't only conquer, but we are more than conquerors because we have grown in faith, because we've matured in Christ, because we got closer to him, sometimes out of desperation, because we have prayed urgent prayers, we have conquered, and now we are more than conquerors. But ultimately, ultimately, John, who wrote these words, needed to have a revelation of the wonderful glory of Christ. The fact that as we read the book of Revelation, which is not a calendar, uh, that God has given us to try and play guessing games with the second coming or a jigsaw puzzle for us to figure out, but rather 
a beautiful widescreen epic that shows us that ultimately God wins, the Apostle John saw this revelation of the risen Christ in Revelation chapter 1. Listen to these words. Let them soak into your heart. John is in lockdown. We don't know how long he was in lockdown on the prison island of Patmos, but he needed to be reminded of hope. He had heard with the other disciples that Jesus had overcome the world, but now a reminder was his, a reminder that surely caused him once again to take heart. John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Let me say it again. John had heard Jesus say to him, take heart. But now, once again, he gets this glorious reminder now in this panoramic vision of the Son of Man in all his glory. Once again, he's being instructed, commanded, invited to take heart, to not be afraid. And it might be that for some of us who've been walking with Jesus for quite a few years now, we're, we're very, very familiar with these words. And familiarity doesn't so much breed contempt, but perhaps the impact of them is not quite the same because we're so used to hearing them. May we once again have this sense that what we see is not all that there is. That Christ is the overcomer. That he will come again. That ultimately God wins. And with that knowledge we commit ourselves at the beginning of this new year to be the people, to be people who take heart, to be people who pursue his purposes. Loved as we are in our fragility, utterly known yet completely loved, unsurprised by pressure and trouble when it comes, knowing that the source of our peace is Jesus himself, and then proactively, intentionally adopting a posture, choosing our attitude that we are going to take heart and not let our hearts be troubled, fueled by a vision of the kingdom. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. My friends there in Birmingham, thank you for the privilege of being able to share with you today. I look forward to our time together tomorrow night. In the meantime, I hand back over to Pastor Mark.